is Very Public Affairs, the podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Here's your host. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Very Public Affairs. I'm Cameron Chu, Analyst at the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs, and in today's episode, we take an in-depth look at the state of public affairs in Japan, which, despite being the third largest economy in the world, little is known about the socio-political environment governments, corporations, and media operate within. How unique is corporate public affairs in Japan, and what similarities can be drawn? For this episode, I interviewed two senior practitioners who work in and have extensive knowledge of corporate public affairs in Japan, John Short, Leader Communications and Corporate Responsibility at Lixel, a producer of water and housing products, and Andrew Wheatley, Vice President, Communication and Public Affairs, Asia-Pacific at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. The first topic of discussion focuses on Japan Inc., a term describing Japan's centralised economic system characterised by strong ties between government and business, and whether its priorities remain domestic in the design of its business, workflows, supply chains, and communication strategy, or if there are signs of greater global integration. I asked Andrew, then John, for their thoughts. I think it varies a lot by industry. Looking at the healthcare industry, certainly Japan has had a very strong leadership role uh, in in healthcare for many years, uh, being at the forefront of pharmaceutical innovation with uh, giants like Takeda and Astellas and Otsuka. Um, But I, I do think that over the last few years, there's certainly been a bit of a slowdown, uh, but certainly the innovation is there. I think the the challenge that to see and across many of these industries is the innovation is fantastic in Japan. So many great ideas, but then the question is how do they commercialize those opportunities? How do they gain access to international markets and kind of export a lot of those ideas? And I think that's something where Japan can continue to look for new ways to do that and improve and strengthen their markets. The economic bubble bursting meant that there was a real shift, both from a kind of a corporate perspective in terms of key priorities, but also, you know, it had an impact on relative kind of household spending and Japan's you know, interaction um, internationally. But, you know, a lot of decisions were taken with a very Japan first view, and that, that would then kind of influence both from a corporate perspective and I suppose individuals. But I think now with the demographic trends for the the market domestically that, you know, it is really important for the Japanese companies to look at how they can expand and broaden their kind of international strategy. And so what we see now is a really shift in terms of how to to execute on those strategies. Things aren't so centralized and taking that really Japan first view, but also really shifting the way that they organize those strategies in terms of implementing and expanding and and really taking a very enterprise view to expanding globally, which is changing how companies organize themselves internally, managing corporate functions, managing corporate affairs and things like that, that needing to take a much broader international view if they really want to be successful on, on the global stage. For the next question, I asked John whether or not a global best practice of corporate public affairs applied to Japan and if any cultural nuances influenced the practice. There is still a strong focus on on the domestic market. And for many Japanese companies, Japan is just such an important market and maybe the majority of sales or, you know, the, the strategy is still based domestically. And so if we want to be more global, then needing to rethink how you're organized, there's a tendency sometimes or traditionally perhaps to very much connect what is headquarters and kind of corporate functions with what's happening in Japan market. But I think to be really successful globally as a 
global function. Those are two separate things, right? Having that kind of enterprise-wide view that looks at the company globally and takes that broader perspective. And then Japan being one key market rather than decisions being taken for Japan first and then adding a kind of a, a global piece to the side of it. And then I think another kind of nuance that is often important in our area of work is how being, say, a Japanese company or headquartered in this region influences how you think about kind of issues management. A lot of trends that we've seen in global companies, such as kind of employee activism and engagement with, you know, the, the, the kind of push from employees to be much more engaged on social issues that we see, you know, there's a big difference between how, say, a global company headquartered in the U.S., would deal with some of those issues because it moves up the ladder much more quickly versus, say, a Japanese company that's headquartered in Japan, where the executive team or CEO may be sitting in Japan, but you still have large employee base, say, in Americas and Europe that are also following these issues, but maybe needing to respond to them from a, a regional level or with a different kind of cultural nuance because you're not, say, a U.S. company. As many listeners may be aware, Japan's population is not only aging but declining, a decades-long result of stubbornly low birth rates and migration. I asked if Prime Minister Kishida's foreboding words about how the nation is on the cusp of whether it can maintain its societal functions indicate significant change is imminent. Andrew discusses this issue from a healthcare perspective. Being part of healthcare industry, uh, we're certainly very interested in this question because the aging population is, is certainly a challenge right now for Japan. But in fact, across many countries in Asia Pacific, it's going to be a challenge in the future. And Japan actually has a very strong foundation to address the challenges of aging. And I think some other markets maybe don't have those same foundations laid as yet. So Japan, a lot of countries are looking at how they're going to navigate the aging society. And I think healthcare is, is really a real critical key. Um, so you see that there is uh, we, we track and talk about life expectancy a lot, but there's actually a gap between life expectancy and sort of healthy life that we see. So yes, you may be living longer, but how long are you still being able to contribute to society in the same way? How long before you need advanced clinical care? How long before you uh, are going to be relying on your extended family to help support you in, in older age? And I think that's really the key is how do we minimize that period? So it's fine if people are living longer. That's great. That's really exciting. But how do we help that be a healthier longevity? Uh, and I think that's the key. So I think it's a suite of solutions of how we get there. And I really think that healthcare is at the center of that, because if we can keep people not just living longer, but living healthier, that's really going to be what will enable not just Japanese society, but societies around the world to um, manage through the aging populations that they have. And really like declining birth rates is a problem in Japan now, but we're seeing that trend start to happen across many different countries around the world. You are listening to a podcast from the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs, a membership-based organisation comprising companies, industry associations and government departments across Asia-Pacific. The Centre works with its members and other entities to apply best practice to extend their social licence to operate. The Centre develops and delivers executive education globally, conducts research and provides specialist consulting services. We shifted the conversation to ESG, and I wanted to understand how it is perceived in Japan and if the negative labels of woke corporations permeated there, starting with Andrew, 
than John. I remember being struck when I first moved here. I went to a bookstore near where I live and in the back of the bookstore in like the children's section, they had a whole display on the SDGs and all these different books for kids about the SDGs. And I was very shocked coming from the US seeing that. And then when I started having interactions with government leaders in Japan and policymakers, a lot of them wear like the little SDG pins on their lapels, their little, the circle of the, the slices. And so it's very much integrated in a different way into the public affairs landscape in Japan, which I think is great. And I think there is a better understanding at a population level of the broader sort of ESG commitments of Japan and its role that it plays in a global society, which I think is really important to encourage. And that bleeds through then into the corporate life, where it's much more just a part of life for many companies. And the government certainly supports companies looking at ESG and particularly being supportive of the SDG goals. We are very committed to looking at how we engage in the ESG conversation in Japan and have been for a long time, whether that be through uh, championing DEI causes, uh, which I know is a certainly a very strong topic at the minute in Japan, whether it's looking at environmental sustainability. I was just having a conversation this morning about our approach to 2030 goals and how that bleeds through uh, into what we do here in Japan as well. I think Japan's in a very good place here where they're much more more integrated into how they address ESG? I think there are a few factors. I mean, one is that maybe Japanese companies fundamentally did maybe take more of that kind of stakeholder capitalism type philosophy, you know, compared to maybe some some Western companies. So there was that kind of broader perspective in many cases in terms of thinking about different stakeholders, think about, you know, sustainability, employees and, and other factors. And then there have been some some shifts. So you know, we have the corporate governance code in Japan, and that's, that was updated, I believe, 2021, with you know, one of the elements of the corporate governance code being updated was for companies or listed companies, at least to really have clarity around their policies for, for sustainability, and that the board having uh, some degree of oversight, the shift and the change in the corporate governance code really embedded that across Japanese companies when, where all listed Japanese companies need to have a clear policy around sustainability and that needs to be signed off at the board level. There's more kind of rigor around these issues now. I think we, you know, we feel from our stakeholders, investors, but also business partners, employees that, you know, they want us to be clear on what our position is. But I think as it relates to ESG and what you said about kind of avoiding perceptions of greenwashing, it's, it's you know, we believe it's really important to not only have a strategy and have some goals, but to have some clear kind of metrics around these things and be clear about, you know, what what is our accountability? How are we tracking and reporting how does it tie in with our core business? So this is not just, you know, a CSR or philanthropy thing that we do on the side, but it's very much aligned with our purpose and our core business. And so there has been that kind of regulatory compliance element to it with the corporate governance code changing, which I think is, has made it more of a focus across the board. But I think, I think a lot of Japanese companies were taking quite a broad perspective to sustainability already. And, you know, now it's, it's obviously accelerating and becoming more important. Next, we discuss the issue of female participation in the workforce and its challenges and successes when faced with traditional hierarchies and cultural expectations, starting with John's response, followed by Andrew's. 
one thing that people may associate with Japan, which was a factor of corporate Japan, was that lifetime employment and very seniority-based system where typically Japanese companies would hire a lot of new grad recruits each year, like a large cohort of, of new grad recruits and people would stay with the same company right through to retirement. And that this had a real impact on the dynamic of how Japanese companies operated with, as you say, more hierarchical, it was more seniority based. And so really how you moved up through the company, a large part of that was based on seniority and, and how long you'd been there and people just gradually moved up. And I think there's a real shift, say from our example at Lixel, that we're you know, really making this move to a more meritocratic based system. And that requires a lot of change in terms of in terms of mindset, in terms of HR processes. It's very important to the you know future success of the business to be, you know, investing in a diverse range of talent, to be able to attract the best talent in these new kind of emerging areas. And so being more meritocratic, more flexible in ways of working is is really important. Our function as a whole probably leans more female, as it does in many markets around the world. And I think that the telework one's been really interesting to see how that's played out in Japan as a very sort of traditional workplace society that the shift to telework was a shock to the system. But now that I think people have gotten used to it and seen the benefits, I do think we will see a shift in the workforce to a more flexible and dynamic workforce where I think there's a lot of opportunity is where women have exited the workforce to start families or to look after their elderly family members. How do we keep them engaged in the workforce and being able to to contribute, I think that's where there's an interesting opportunity for Japan to really think through and where they can increase the flexibility, whether it's through telework or, or other newer technologies and approaches to enable that greater participation. Because uh, as I said, particularly in our function, right, a huge portion of our function are Japanese women. And so how do we help them continue to get their ideas and experiences into companies and where we can provide opportunities to have transition back into work programs? There's a lot of innovation still to come. In my final question, I asked John, then Andrew, what their advice would be for a corporate public affairs practitioner starting or seeking work in Japan. I think in the past, maybe working in communications or public affairs, at times it may have been enough to be a, a Japan specialist or somebody that you know knew Japan or spoke some Japanese and, and could help to bridge that gap or provide global perspective or, or English capabilities to work across global teams. But I think the way that our industry is changing and the way that, you know, companies are becoming a much more global in their in their structure, in their kind of mindset of how the functions are operating, you know, whether it's expertise in ESG or sustainability or perhaps employee engagement as, you know, workforces are changing and, you know, that interaction between the human resources teams and the public affairs teams and the expertise that you can bring to that or perhaps you know digital and, and content strategy this is also an area where you know there's tremendous change happening in our industry and I think there's great opportunities for people who may be looking to to develop their career in Japan to bring expertise in some of those areas because it's these are just as relevant here in Japan as they are elsewhere and I think the industry and companies are changing in the same way and I think a lot of opportunities to develop your career in some of these areas traditionally I don't think communications and public affairs has been seen as necessarily a desirable career path in the same way in Japan or had the sort of the publicity 
you know, don't have people coming out of university saying, hey, I'm, I want to go be a communications and public affairs practitioner. Uh, and I think as the industry evolves, as the role that we play becomes more of a strategic partner at, at the business table, we are going through that transformation of becoming a more strategic thought partner at the table. What I think is exciting with Japan is the cross-disciplinary nature of work in Japan. Often when you start at a, a Japanese domestic company, you sort of work across a range of different functions over a few years. You do rotations through the business. I think in the past, it's meant sometimes you have had public affairs and communications practitioners that don't have a huge depth of skill. But how can we flip that and look at it as actually that gives you a very broad breadth of understanding of the business uh, and able to recognize many different opportunities and ways that our function can support uh, business growth and, and drive through business objectives in a different way that somebody with just only sort of the traditional communications and public affairs background can do. So I do think there is an opportunity to have a more multidisciplinary approach and see that as a benefit in Japan rather than a hindrance. Thank you, John and Andrew, for your time and your insights. And thank you, listeners, for joining in this episode of Very Public Affairs. Until next time. If you enjoyed this episode of Very Public Affairs, subscribe in iTunes and leave a review. For more, visit the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs website at www.accpa.com.au.